It really does take a long time for our team to agree on the list of topics that we want to cover on the podcast. We try to do that for four to six months out, and we try to make it fit our calendar. That's why my team gets irritated when I show up to the recording and say, um, I know we were supposed to cover item X, which has been on the books for weeks, but I really want to cover something else instead. I think it happens around 30% of the time, but my podcast team tells me it happens a lot more frequently than that. Well, that's exactly what happened with this episode right here. You see, we weren't supposed to cover the marginal cord insertion, but because this happened to me in clinic just the day before the recording, I brought it to the team and we bumped our regular topic so we can talk about this. See, here's what happened. In clinic, we had a patient diagnosed with a marginal cord insertion during her fetal anatomical survey. She was around 21 weeks. Well, the resident then said, hey, I just wanted to be clear. I'm going to put it in her chart as a flag so that we can do her antepartum fetal surveillance starting around 32 weeks. Well, wait a minute. That started the whole discussion. Is marginal cord insertion an indication for outpatient antepartum fetal surveillance? The data surrounding marginal cord insertion is actually a little conflicting and a little controversial, but we're going to make sense of it in this episode. Is antepartum fetal surveillance indicated? And what about serial ultrasounds for fetal growth? Is that required for marginal cord insert? And you want to stick with us towards the end of the podcast, because after we cover both sides of the argument, we're going to give the expert opinion about how best to manage your pregnancy with a diagnosed marginal cord insertion. We're glad you're with us. Now let's start our discussion covering marginal cord insert, benign or not. Just trying to keep everyone up to date on evidence-based practice because medicine moves real fast. This is Clinical Pearls. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Of course, the big fear of any abnormal placentation or cord variant is that it could increase the risk of stillbirth. I mean, ACOG does recognize the theory that about 25% of stillbirths may be potentially preventable and that the majority of those, over 50%, may be due to some placental abnormality or placental insufficiency, with most of those deaths occurring after 37 weeks abnormalities of placental shape, the single umbilical artery, and abnormalities of umbilical cord insertions, especially the villamentous cord insertion, are thought to reflect abnormal placental implantation. Not surprisingly, the abnormalities have been associated with increased risk of stillbirth, but whether the increased risk of stillbirth is independent of fetal growth restriction is unknown. Examination of the placenta, the cord, and membranes is listed among the most important tests in the evaluation of a stillbirth. In the population-based case control study of stillbirth that was conducted by the National Institute of Child Health and Human Development, that's called the Stillbirth Collaborative Research Network, the odds ratio for stillbirth were 4.8 for a single umbilical artery 
and 4.5 for filamentous cord insertion. I want to stop and redo those numbers because those are frightening odds ratio. Remember that an odds ratio of 2 is double the risk. An odds ratio of 3 is triple the risk and so forth. And we just said that the risk of stillbirth was 4.8 for single umbilical artery and 4.5 for filamentous cord insertion. Those odds ratios are staggering. In a previous podcast, we covered the single umbilical artery, and you can find that in the archive. So I'd encourage you to go back and listen to that if you didn't, because the single umbilical artery isn't just a kind of a incidental find. It could be linked to some adverse issues, as we've just discussed. I know our topic is on marginal cord insertion, but hang with me here for a minute because I'm just laying the groundwork here before we get into that specific issue. We're focusing on the filamentous cord insertion and the single umbilical artery for a reason because those are true abnormalities. In a recent meta-analysis, the stillbirth rate was 34 per thousand in the filamentous cord insertion group and the stillbirth rate of 12 per thousand was found in cases of the isolated single umbilical artery. And that stillbirth rate is high. In light of these findings, ACOG and SMFM advocate for serial antenatal fetal surveillance in the case of filamentous cord insertion or the single umbilical artery. For patients with filamentous cord insertion or single umbilical artery, weekly antenatal fetal surveillance may be considered beginning at 36 weeks of gestation. This is referenced in the ACOG committee opinion, which is number 828, which is indications for outpatient antepartum fetal surveillance. That was released in June of 2021. In terms of medically indicated late preterm or early term delivery, ACOG only references vasa previa as the cord abnormality where early delivery is recommended. That's recommended at 34 to 37 weeks. This recommendation can be found in ACOG's committee opinion 831, which is medically indicated late preterm and early term deliveries from July of 2021. Now we're going to get into marginal cord insertion. But did you catch what we just covered? Only filamentous cord insertion and the single umbilical artery are referenced as indications for weekly antenatal fetal surveillance, not marginal cord insert. So this has led some to believe that it's kind of a normal variant. Ah, but it's deeper than that. And you know I love a good controversy (laughs) because the data is actually on both sides of the fence. And we're going to make this clear in this episode. So is a marginal cord insert an independent risk factor for adverse pregnancy issues? Let's get into that information next. With a normal cord insertion, the umbilical cord inserts in the center of the placenta. The center is the most secure place for attachment. Normal attachment supports the seamless flow of nutrients from the mother to the placenta to the fetus. The diagnosis of a marginal cord insertion or an MCI in some articles is established when the placental insertion site is located within 1 to 2 centimeters from the placental edge, although most use less than 2 centimeters as the cutoff. This can easily be seen by prenatal ultrasound by the simultaneous visualization of the umbilical cord insertion site and the margin of the placenta. Marginal cord insertion is more common in multiple gestations than in pregnancies involving a single fetus. 
occurrences range from 2% to 25% of pregnancies, with singleton pregnancies being on the low end and multiple births being on the high end of this range. There are conflicting reports regarding the clinical significance of marginal insertion detected prenatally, especially as an isolated finding, meaning there is no fetal growth restriction associated with it. Some studies have found a relationship between the marginal cord insertion with low birth weight or preterm birth, as was published by Aleph et al. in the Journal of Maternal Fetal Neonatal Medicine in 2019. But others did not find an association between marginal cord insert and any abnormal outcome, like Lou et al.'s publication in the Journal of Ultrasound Medicine back in 2002. I want to go a little deeper into this data here so you can see just how conflicting and controversial this whole thing of the isolated marginal cord insertion really is. In April of 2020, Candace O'Quinn published in the Green Journal their investigation looking at an imaging database. They were evaluating the association between antenatal diagnosis of villamentous and marginal placental cord insertion with adverse perinatal outcomes like small for gestational age or cesarean birth or perinatal mortality. Now, they chose to define small for gestational age as being less than the fifth percentile. In other words, not less than 10th percentile, like which is typical for fetal growth restriction, but less than the 5th percentile to be really specific here for adverse neonatal issues. They studied this because most of the associations between cord insertion abnormalities and adverse neonatal outcomes, at least historically, were based on histological reviews of the placenta after birth, not on antenatal ultrasound diagnoses. So O'Quinn et al. had a great idea. Hey, let's take a look at imaging database that actually identified this antenatally and then see what happened rather than finding the small for gestational age birth weight infant and then finding the marginal cord insertion at time of birth and going, ah, that definitely is what caused it because that totally introduces a factor of bias. So I like this study and let's see what they found out. In this study, the women in the villamentous cord insertion group were more likely to have gestational hypertension, whereas the women in the marginal cord insertion group tended to be older, tended to have more pregnancies resulting from assisted reproductive technologies, and were more likely to be primaparous than those in the central cord insertion group. Women in both groups were more likely to have more ultrasound exams during pregnancy. Villamentous cord insertion was associated with an increased risk of cesarean delivery, and this association persisted after controlling for smoking, diabetes, and hypertension. Villamentous cord insertion was also associated with an increased risk of perinatal death. Before we get into what they found with marginal cord insertion, we can't lose the fact that villamentous cord insertion was associated with some bad stuff. However, an association between small for gestational age, less than the 5th percentile, was not found for marginal cord insertion. Remember, these authors used SGA less than the 5th percentile, not less than the 10th percentile, which is the traditional definition of fetal growth restriction. But here's the catch. 
these authors did find an association between marginal cord insertion and SGA at the 10th percentile. That's right at the borderline of FGR. So remember, the authors used to increase their specificity for true neonatal morbidity a cutoff of 5 percentile between either filamentous cord insertion and uh, marginal cord insertion based on antenatal diagnosis. And there was no association with marginal cord insert for 5% fetal growth on Hadlock, but they did find an association for fetal weights at the 10th percentile. Now, just to be clear, remember that ACOG uses the definition of fetal growth restriction as less than the 10th percentile, not at the 10th percentile. So you see how kind of interesting and controversial this is? Vilamentous cord insertion, yes, definitely associated with some bad stuff, including SGAs at less than the 5th percentile and perinatal death. However, according to these same authors, marginal cord insertion was only associated with SGAs found on headlock based on the 10th percentile, not 5% or less. And then, in 2022, in the Journal of Maternal, Fetal, and Neonatal Medicine, Azoglu et al. conducted a retrospective cohort study of singleton pregnancies undergoing ultrasound between 2016 and 2018. Marginal cord insertion was defined in the traditional way, which was an insertion at or less than 2 centimeters from the placental edge. Pregnancies with marginal insertion were compared to those with normal cord insertions. If you notice, that sounds just like the O'Quinn publication that we just covered. In this new study from 2022, there was a trend towards an increased incidence of oligohydramnios, polyhydramnios, and breech presentation in patients with marginal insertions. However, these associations did not reach statistical significance. So the authors stated, quote, Our study did not demonstrate any increase in adverse pregnancy outcomes in the presence of marginal placental cord insertion. These findings may provide reassurance for counseling patients with this sonographic finding, end quote. All right, time for a little recap. So what have we figured out here? Well, in 2020, according to the O'Quinn data, marginal cord insertion may be linked to headlock estimated fetal weights of around 10th percentile, but that doesn't qualify for FGR. And then the 2022 publication by Azoglu et al. found that it's pretty much almost a normal variant. So both of these publications from 2020 and 2022 are like, eh, not a big deal. I wouldn't worry about it so much. Just kind of do shared decision making, but definitely not a biggie. Ah, but podcast family, remember what I said earlier. It's not that simple because there are some other publications that don't paint such a sunny picture regarding the marginal cord insertion. Let's get into the other side of the argument next. As we have stated previously, some studies have identified marginal cord insertion as an independent risk factor for adverse issues. A case control study published in 2021 in the same journal that we've already discussed, the Journal of Maternal, Fetal, and Neonatal Medicine, published by Nwambog et al., found that marginal cord insertion was significantly associated with preeclampsia, 
nuchal cord entanglement, low birth weight, and transfer of the child to the NICU. Similarly, and most recent as of last month in January 2023, published in the American Journal of Perinatology, a retrospective study also had a cautionary tale regarding marginal placental cord insertion. This study was funded by the Society of Maternal Fetal Medicine and the American Association of Obstetricians and Gynecologists Foundation. The authors found, according to this retrospect review, quote, abnormal placental cord insertion is associated with SGA infants and preterm birth. They go on to say, quote, if an abnormal placental cord insertion is identified antenatally, the provider should consider serial growth ultrasounds. And here's the most telling part. They go on to say, quote, there is no difference in obstetric outcomes between vilimentous cord insertion and marginal cord insertions, end quote. The reference for this quote is Zahidi Spung et al. from American Journal of Perinatology, which came out in print January 2023, although the EPUB came out back in 2021. Now, before we leave this data set and end the podcast with the expert opinion on how to manage the marginal cord insertion pregnancy, I don't want to skim over what these authors found because it's a pretty heavy statement. Remember, they said, quote, there is no difference in obstetric outcome between vilimentous cord insertion and marginal insertions, end quote. And that's a heavy statement because we already know that vilimentous cord insertions are linked to some bad issues. But as we've already stated earlier in the podcast, remember that right now, ACOG and SMFM advocate for serial antepartum fetal surveillance only in the case of vilimentous cord insertion or in the case of the single umbilical artery. They don't list marginal cord insertion among the list of diagnoses that requires antenatal fetal surveillance. So maybe that's something that they should update according to this January 2023 publication. All right, podcast family, now that we're at the end of the episode, let's wrap this up by covering the expert opinion on how to do conservative management of a pregnancy found to have a marginal cord insertion. Although some studies have shown no adverse neonatal issues in cases of the isolated marginal cord insertion, other studies as recent as January 2023 have shown an association with SGA infants and preterm birth. Based on this data, conservative management, which can include serial growth ultrasounds, is very reasonable because it's a low-risk intervention and can help identify those children that are falling under the growth curve. However, there are no formal ultrasound guidelines for how often to perform these growth ultrasounds for the isolated marginal cord insertion. Although growth scans are reasonable, there does not seem to be an indication for antepartum fetal surveillance in cases of isolated marginal cord insertion. And here's something important to remember. Marginal cord insertion that's diagnosed early on, like during the time of the fetal survey around 18 to 22 weeks, that does require rescan of the insertion site in the late second trimester to early third trimester because there can be an association between marginal cord insertion and later development of vilimentous vessels. 
according to Zhang et al.'s 2020 publication, up to 9% of cases diagnosed with vasoprevia during the second trimester scan actually presented with an earlier marginal cord insertion. That's why it's important that if you do find this, and if you're not going to do repeat serial ultrasounds for fetal growth, which you should do as conservative management, then at least check that cord insertion at least once at the end of the second trimester or early third trimester, just to make sure that villamentous vessels have not developed because there can be that association between marginal cord insertion and then the later development of villamentous vessels. And as our last clinical pearl for the episode, and as a reminder, isolated marginal cord insertion is not an indication for antepartum fetal surveillance, early induction of labor, or cesarean section. All right, podcast family, that brings us to a wrap. We have covered a somewhat controversial topic, marginal cord insertion. But it's out there, and you're going to find this on antepartum ultrasound. So remember, be conservative. Follow up that fetal growth. Take a look at that insertion site at the end of the second trimester or early third trimester to not miss any development of filamentous vessels. And above all, share with the patient that although this topic can be a little controversial, it always is in the patient's best interest to be conservative. As always, we're thankful for you and we're glad you're part of our podcast community. And we'll see you on another episode of Clinical Pearls. Thank you.